0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to read from verse 37 uh, down to the end of the chapter, verse 62. So Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 37, reading down to the end of verse 62. This is the word of God. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. "'I begged your disciples to drive it out,' but they could not. "'You unbelieving and perverse generation,' Jesus replied. "'How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? "'Bring your son here.' "'Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. "'But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father.' And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. in the kingdom of God. Well, before we work through this section together, let's pray. Our Father, today, a day in our society uh, set apart to think about fatherhood, we are most pleased to be able to call you our Father. You are the great Father. And it is through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we call you that, that we can know you in the context of that relationship. And Father, it is through what your Son has done for us that there is salvation, that there is restoration and healing, uh, that there is forgiveness for sin. And so Father, we thank you so much for this great plan of redemption and salvation that you have provided for us in your Son, that you have adopted us into your family, And Father, I pray that you will help us to really be aware of how great of a privilege and a blessing that is. Uh, Father, uh, this morning we think of our fathers, grandfathers, perhaps even great-grandfathers, or uh, brothers, children. And Lord, we just ask that you will bless all of those relationships that we have. We ask that you will uh, bring healing into relationships where that is required. Uh, We pray that you will uh, just flood us with grace. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are fathers, we do pray that you will forgive us for not just the the shortcomings and mistakes, but even for uh, the immoral attitudes that we have had, Uh, the wickedness in temper and lack of patience, just all of those things that have been sins against you and against our children. And Father, we ask again that you will forgive us. But we also ask that you will treat our children with nothing but grace. That you will bless them in, proportion, in, in without proportion to the merits of their parents. Uh, that you will bless them out of the abundance of your love and your heart, Father. If there are uh, men here who have children who are not close to you, we pray that you will uh, this day, even this day, work in the lives of their children. Work in their hearts, work in their minds, draw them to yourself through Jesus. And Father, we pray that uh, next year, at this time, we will be able to hear of great things you have done uh, in the lives of our families. So Father, we commit our time to you. We ask that your spirit uh, will open your word, help us to understand it, help us to love it, help us to do it, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this section uh, here in the Gospel of Luke has a lot to tell us about what it means to follow Jesus. It has a lot to tell us about discipleship. And in a lot of ways, we shouldn't be surprised by that in terms of the context. Uh, A couple weeks ago and then last week, we were talking and we we went through uh, earlier material in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus, uh, for the first time, his disciples recognize and say, You are the Messiah. You are the special anointed one of God. You are specially set apart, unlike anyone else. And Jesus says, you're blessed that you know this, but then Jesus needs to explain to them that being the Messiah, being the anointed one of God, means that he is going to have to suffer and be rejected and die. And the disciples are not prepared for that. They are not prepared to hear about a special anointed Messiah who is going to be rejected and die. They were expecting... That whenever the Messiah showed up, the Messiah would just sort of move into Jerusalem, drive out all of the enemies of Israel. Of course, at this time, Israel is occupied by the Romans. Uh, and so they're expecting if the Messiah comes at this time in history, he's going to drive out the Romans, he's going to purify the city, he's going to purify the temple, and it's going to be a great time of victory, and the age of victory will never end. They're not prepared to hear that the Messiah will suffer and die. But Jesus also teaches them that if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a follower of a Messiah who suffers and dies, you will suffer and die. You need to pick up your cross every day and follow him. And lest you think that that's too difficult or that that's a really bad deal, you're also told, though, that it's worse to gain the whole world and to lose your soul or your life. Better to follow Jesus and die than to gain absolutely everything that this world has. All of the power and wealth and pleasure that there is in this world, better to give all of that away, to be a follower of Jesus. But then Jesus, as we saw last week, takes three of the disciples up onto the mountain of transfiguration, where he shows them his glory, where the veil of his glory is peeled back. And he doesn't gain glory. Glory isn't added to him. All that the disciples are allowed to see is the glory that's always there. And we talked about how there are some very real connections with God's display of glory on Mount Sinai and what Jesus is doing on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have Moses there. You have the talk about the Exodus uh, that Jesus is going to bring to fulfillment. You have the cloud of glory, which you had in Exodus. Uh, They're on the mountain. The glory is revealed. There's fear. There's fighting. All of these things are showing you Old Testament fulfillment in Jesus. Now, you may remember then, That when Moses is in the glory cloud of God on Sinai, receiving the law, he comes down from the mount, and what does he find? Does he find people who are in faith, walking in victory in the camp? Do they find people who have been loyal and faithful to God? No, what do they find? They find disobedience. They find idolatry. They find perversion. They find that Aaron, the high priest, the the people who are supposed to be maintaining the holiness of God are failing to honor God as they ought. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. What does he find? Does he find the other disciples walking in victory and faith? No, he finds absolute turmoil. He finds chaos because there's this boy who has... A, who, who is oppressed by a demon. And in the New Testament, they did know how to differentiate between sort of organic illness and demon possessions. So a lot of people want to say, oh, this is just a, a pre-scientific, pre-critical book. And so uh, people in this time, whenever there was a seizure, they just assumed it was a demonic activity. And that, that's not the case. Even in the New Testament, there's clear distinctions drawn uh, between cases where demons are involved and cases where it is just illness. So here's... Jesus coming down from displaying his glory, down into the camp, so to speak, of his disciples, the people of God, the reconstituted Israel. And they're failing, just like the children of Israel had failed when Moses comes down from Sinai. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends out the disciples, and we're told when he called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And so it's not like they haven't been equipped to do this. It's not like they ha- don't have the resources. Jesus has empowered them and enabled them and equipped them to do exactly what they're failing to do. So their failure isn't because Jesus hasn't given them the, uh, the ability. Their failure is because they're not well, exercising faith to claim the power that Jesus Christ has already given them in their life and in their ministry. So here's a father. Here's a father who... Ever since the child was young, if they had the equivalent of Father's Day in the first century, which they didn't, uh, because at that point they didn't have Mother's Day. And we all know Father's Day is just a tack-on to make up for Mother's Day. Like, no one actually, there would never be a Father's Day if there wasn't a Mother's Day. I mean, we all know this. You know, it's sort of like, it is a little tiny touch of reverse affirmative action, you know, <laughs> where really people only care about motherhood. Well, we have to do something for Father's then. Well, let's, let's tack one on in June, you know. So that's really sort of what's going on. But if they had the equivalent of Father's Day in the first century, every year, here's this father, this is his only son. And the significance of this is not only that he loves the child, of course he does, but he's also, he is the hope for the family line, the family name. And he's very sick, and he's oppressed and attacked by a demon, and the demon tries to kill him, and he has seizures. And for any father, you can only imagine how difficult that would be. Here is your child, your, your precious child. And year after year, very regularly, you see these sorts of attacks, seizures, sickness. So you get a conference uh, a few years ago in the summer. there's was another uh, speaker, there's two of us, uh, named uh, Garth Lino. Excellent speaker, great guy. And he has a daughter uh, named Jamie, who has uh, significant health issues. Uh, she's always been in a wheelchair, uh, not very cognitively developed, and she has seizures. I remember we were at this camp, and uh, she had a a massive seizure in the field, and the medics are working on her, and uh, one of the texts that Garth preached on, it was the next day, uh, was from the Gospel of Mark, and as I remember, he was reading, and one of the things that Jesus healed was people with seizures. Uh, and I'll just never forget, as he's reading that text, and, and then he gets to seizures, and his, his voice catches, and his eyes fill up with tears. and you know, we, we just hear about these things Jesus did, and, but this was life for these people, right? This wasn't a story to them. This was every day this father's worried is today the day where my son has this seizure, and it's his last. Is today the day where he falls into the fire or into the water? Is today the day where his life ends? And disciples can't do anything about it. And this is one of those great implicit lessons about life. People who follow Jesus might let you down a lot. But you don't need them to go to Jesus. You don't need me to to go to Jesus. You don't need Pastor Sam to go to Jesus. You don't need deacons. You don't need elders. You don't need Sunday school teachers. You don't need anyone. You can go to Jesus directly. And so people will let you down. People will fail you. They will. And in the church, yes, there, there is hypocrisy. There's all those sorts of things. But you can go right to Jesus. And that's what this father does. I tried your disciples. They're no. They're, they're useless. Just like the average pastor. You know? <laughs> I tried them. They're no good at all. Jesus, I'm coming to you. I need your help. And what can Jesus do that his disciples can't? Well, everything. I begged your disciples. They couldn't do anything. Then Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? And I think that this reaction is showing, again, sort of like Moses's anger coming down from Sinai. This is a big deal. This should not be the way that it is. Why is it like this? Bring your son here. Verse 42, we're told the demon threw him to the ground. And the language used is actually, it's a, it's a, a wrestling term. And you know, not, you know, WWF or WWE or whatever, you know, the acronym is these days. Um, but, you know, the actual, you know, Olympic sort of grappling and wrestling. And so the demon overpowers the boy, violently throws him to the ground. But Jesus rebuked it. That's all, that's all you need to say. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were amazed at the greatness of God. The word for greatness refers to being unsurpassed. There is no one like God. And so, when people see what Jesus does and the superior power, here is this demon sort of that sort of body slams this child, and, and then but Jesus comes along and Jesus sort of just just takes that demon and just casts him out. Everyone goes, "Oh, the, the the demon is strong, but Jesus is stronger." You know, Satan has power; the forces of darkness have power. But they have nothing on our Lord and God, and people are astounded. God is great. He is unexcelled. He is not surpassed. He is not even equaled. There is none as great as our God. And that's what people see in the life of Jesus. So here we see in terms of discipleship, failure. The disciples have identified Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus has told them what discipleship looks like. They've seen the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. Then the next thing you see is Failure. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter didn't understand what was going on, didn't know what to say. Here, the other nine who didn't go up on the mountain, absolute failure. Which, perversely, maybe gives us some comfort and hope too. Jesus says, you know what, this is wrong, this is perverse, this is wicked, how long shall I put up with you? And yet... Jesus is so patient with this group, and Jesus is so patient with us. He's so patient with all of us. I mean, how many of us, seriously, if you're a follower of Jesus, how many of you are going to say, even this, just this last week, how many of you would say there were no failures whatsoever in your life? In terms of thought, in terms of motive, in terms of action, in terms of leaving things undone that should have been done or whatever it is. How many of you going to say, even in one week? I mean, how, even this morning. I mean, like, you know, I remember a preacher, now in his 90s, saying, you know what, even if Jesus came to me and said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you, I'm going to pay the penalty for all of your sins in the past, starting now. But then all you need to do is, is you just need to not sin again until I return. But I'm going I'm to pay all back, all of your debt. It's going to be wiped away. I'm a dead man. <laughs> you know? Like, there's no, there's no chance. There's no hope. There, there's nothing if you have to do it on your own. But Jesus forgives us for our failure. And in some ways, to me, that's very comforting. He doesn't expect perfection from his disciples. He's patient and he's full of grace. Then, while everyone was marveling at all this, with all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So this is the second time he predicts his death. So everyone's marveling, oh, look how great God is. He says, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And notice this, they didn't understand They did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. The implication here is they didn't know because they didn't ask. They could have known what Jesus was talking about, but they were afraid to ask. Why? I don't know. Maybe because Jesus did rebuke them, sometimes with a little bit of vigor. Uh, Maybe they just didn't want to get in trouble. Maybe they were already stinging a little bit from some of their failures. Maybe they just didn't want to acknowledge that they didn't have it all together. Which I think maybe a lot of the point, for some of us anyway, at least for me, there's a lot of times I don't, I don't want to admit that I don't know. I don't want to admit that I don't have it all together. Because, my goodness, you know, I'm 37. And if you don't have it all together by 37, like there's no hope for you, right? I mean, everyone who gets it all together, they have it all together by 37. And so you want to print, oh, no, I have my life together, I've got it. You don't. I mean, none of us do. And so we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, the truth is maybe I should know this, but I don't. Help me. Maybe I should be able to have victory here, but I don't. Help me. We're just so afraid to acknowledge our weakness. But if you acknowledge your weakness, that's when you get help. That's that's, that's the, the ironic part about it. Is if you're going to posture and go through life like you're strong, you'll always be weak. You'll always be covering up. You'll always be projecting something that isn't true. But it's when you can just acknowledge that Jesus, I don't get it. That's when he'll teach you. That's when he'll show you. Discipleship doesn't mean having it all figured out, but it does mean getting over your insecurity, being afraid to ask Jesus. He will help you. Now, this is something just astounding. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So, Jesus has just said, I'm about to die. I don't get that. But you know what? At least I'm better than you. Like, how does that start? You know, how does that how does that conversation begin? Right? I mean, or or is it just because you know the three come down and and who knows? You know, maybe, maybe James sort of says to Peter, As, you know, great comment up there on the mount about building the three tabernacles." You know, and then sort of the other disciples like, "What? You know, what? What happened up there, Peter? What did you say?" And Peter says, "Well, well, yeah, but you know what? At least we were the ones who were invited up there. Where were you guys?" down at the foot of the mountain oh yeah and what were you doing being total failures you know like like you know how does that start you know but they're they're talking about it and they're going on and and they're jockeying for position and it's who's going to be greatest And, and and jesus has just told them he's going to die their lord and master has said i'm going to die and they're jockeying for position about who's better than someone else It would be very, very, very nice if you couldn't imagine that ever happening in some of our church circles. It would be really nice if there was no posturing in churches today. No power struggles. No assessing ourselves more highly than we ought. No comparing ourselves to others. Well, they do this, but I do this better than them. And all the things that we do to jockey for position, maybe not as crassly as this, But the same sort of attitude is present in us, too. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, interesting comment, took a little child and had him stand beside them. And and notice what he says. He doesn't say, this is your model for being a disciple. He says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. In other words, it's not be like a child, it's welcome this child. What's the point there? Well, to be honest... In the first century, children were seen as blessings because of their potential. They weren't sort of seen as intrinsically anything to get excited about, but they were your retirement. You know, when you're too old to work, they'll work. They'll take care of you. You know, they're going to be one day fully functioning members of society when they grow up, when they get a little bit stronger, when they mature. But children were v- relatively just insignificant. It was an adult world. Not a world for kids. And so for Jesus to say, whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me, what he's really saying is, listen, greatness is not just sort of walking around trying to impress everyone else or cultivate the right connections and the right circle and the right network. It's welcoming the least. It's welcoming the insignificant. It's welcoming the small. It's welcoming those who don't sort of increase your social prestige. It's welcoming and being hospitable to those who aren't going to pay you back, uh, whether, you know, in terms of a good meal or in terms of just sort of in, in increasing your social status. Oh, I'm friends with so-and-so, you know, and, and even today, how how quick we are to drop names, who we know and, well, like, well I would be. <laughs> dropping names if i knew people who were really important they don't want to spend time with me you know but you know but people who do know people who are important you know we love to drop names we love to show off and jesus no no the greatest is the least and in my kingdom discipleship means you don't go pursuing the corridors of power you don't go sort of schmoozing you go to the poor the weak the insignificant why because they're the ones who need the help And so you go in my name to those who are vulnerable and helpless. You don't go to the powerful and the elite. That's what the world does. My kingdom is not to be like that. So you want to argue about greatness, you've already completely misunderstood. You've completely, completely misunderstood the nature of my kingdom. It's not a place for the great, it's a place for the small. It's a place for the weak. And you need to welcome the weak. Of course... That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus welcomes the weak. His disciples, if they could just see it, are exactly a case in point. They're too busy arguing about which one of them is greatest to see that they're actually really weak and in need of patience and forgiveness and mercy and grace and help. They're a lot more like little children than they know. And so Jesus calls us to welcome the least. And then John says, and I I have to, as I'm reading this, I'm trying not to allow my own personality to color my interpretation of Jesus's emotional life. But as I'm reading this, and honestly, as I've been reflecting on this over the last couple weeks, it just strikes, it keeps striking me, like, it must have been really, really, really frustrating to be Jesus. You know, and maybe if you get to a certain you know, in terms of holiness, maybe frustration's not really an emotion that you feel. I, I don't know, but what I'm reading, it just seems like it's just wave after wave after wave of stupidity, and wave after wave after wave of failure. And you, you, what don't you get about this? So you've just had this you know colossal failure. You've just been told your Messiah is going to die. You're arguing about who's greatest. Jesus tries to correct you. And then the next thing out of John's mouth is, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he's not one of us. He's not part of our inner circle. Now, the ironic thing about this is that this unnamed individual is apparently successful at what the disciples just failed at. So you're like, what on earth is wrong with you? We saw him successfully driving out demons, which we can't do, but we stopped him because he's not part of our little group. He's not part of our sect. He's not part of us. And I just, because there are, there, you don't get any inflection or tone, how did Jesus say this? Do not stop him. For whoever is not against you, is for you. What did he look like when he said that? How did he emphasize that? Was like was it like, yeah. well, like how what was it like? I don't know. I, but man, it must have been difficult. Do not stop. Him. How can you not understand? He's not part of our little group, but he's successfully driving out demons and and pushing back the kingdom of darkness in my name. Don't you get that that's a good thing? Oh, it's the same, maybe not to the same extent, but maybe a little bit in our cities. Oh, their church is growing, but they don't do this the way we do. Oh, they've compromised here, or whatever. I mean, we're just so good. If it's not our group, somehow our group is doing it right, even if we're failing. And so we stop everyone else, or we throw stones at everyone else, and it's the same hard attitude. And Jesus, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. We also see this, though, interestingly enough, in the life of Moses, too. When the Lord sends his spirit upon the elders, and they begin to prophesy. And then there's two elders, Medad and Eldad, who are not part of this group. They weren't with this group when the Spirit fell, but they also are prophesying. And Joshua comes running to Moses and says, there's a problem. Those guys have the Spirit too, but they're not over here with us. This is, in so many ways, this whole section in Luke is is recapitulating Moses-Israel-Sinai experiences. And Moses says, very famously, would that all God's children were prophets. That's the exact same attitude of Jesus. Would that everyone drove out demons in my name. Would that everyone was my follower. Not just those in this little circle over here, but everyone. And of course, and so with Moses, would that all God's children are prophets? That's what's fulfilled in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's children in the new covenant community. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, which shows that the ascension after the crucifixion and resurrection is always part of the plan, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this actually constitutes a major structural shift in Luke's narrative. So chapter 9, verse 51, marks a major break in how Luke has structured the gospel. Now Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem for a number of chapters. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village, and we know because of the Samaritans, because of their lineage, uh, interbred with the Assyrians and all kinds of other pagan people through forcible settlement uh, and deportation, uh, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They were couldn't stand each other. In fact, most Jews, when they were traveling uh, to Jerusalem from the north, they would actually just move—they would go around Samaria, even though it was a lot faster uh, to go through it. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem, sends the messengers ahead. They go to this village in Samaria, and the Samaritans reject them. Now, that's not altogether all that surprising. But the disciples, James and John, see this, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? So this is not getting better, right? In terms of Jesus and the disciples and what they're saying and what they're doing. Now, what they are doing, though, is they're recasting back to Second Kings chapter one, where Elijah is going to be is going to be captured by. There's going to be an attempt to capture Elijah by the king of Samaria. Samaritan Samaria, of course, at that time in history, Samaria was just a word for the or a name for the ten northern tribes of Israel. So the king of Samaria wants to capture Elijah. Soldiers come out, and fire from heaven falls down and destroys them. So what the disciples are saying is, look, in Elijah's day, fire from heaven came down and consumed enemies of Elijah. These people are your enemies. Let's destroy them too in just the same way. And again, what does verse 55 look like? But Jesus turned... And rebuked them. We're not told what he said. We're not told how he said it. We're not told if he was just absolutely furious or exasperated. or We have no idea. But he has rebuked them. This is not the way it's going to be. And then these last three questions about discipleship. They're walking along the road. A man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a big claim. It's a big claim that's met with a harsh reality. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, count the cost. You better be careful. You say you're going to follow Jesus no matter what? Well, What if you go through some deep waters? You're going to follow Jesus no matter what? Well, What if there are some storms? What if there's some heartache? What if there's some tragedy? What if... Frankly, your life was a lot more peaceable before Jesus. In other words, what if, what if all of a sudden you know you, you, you find that you have to battle against the sinful tendencies that you just took for granted previously? In other words, what if you end up fighting? You know, as John Owen would say, you know, mortifying sin, you know, killing sin before sin is killing you. You didn't feel that touch. You didn't feel that fight before. Now you're in a fight. And sometimes that can be difficult. what if you're called to give up everything and and get on that road walking with Jesus? What if you're called to to spend your money differently? What if if you're called to, to actually use your finances like a Christian rather than a 21st century North American? What if there are real... Constraints. What if there actually are duties and obligations? I'll follow you wherever you go. Okay, well, the road might be difficult, and it might not be comfortable. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Which seems like a reasonable request. But Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Of God. Now, this is difficult. It's difficult in terms of the claim of Jesus on the person's life, but it's also difficult in terms of interpretation. Uh, there, so there are multiple you know, interpretations that different people will propose. Uh, some people will say, you know, in the Jewish culture there were two burials, which is true this time. So you have the tombs that they would put the body in for about a year. The body would decompose, and then they would go in and collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and permanently bury them somewhere else. So some people will say, this is the person saying, you know, my father's died, we've put his body in the tomb, we have to wait a number of months or maybe up to a year before we bury him, then after that, I can go and do whatever it is. So that might be the case. Might be a number of months, up to a year, waiting for the second burial. Others will say that, um, that the father hasn't died yet. And so this is sort of a way of saying, I have obligations to my father. Once he dies and I bury him, then I will come and follow you. So that's an undefined period of time or an indefinite period of time. Uh, No matter how you come down in terms of the details, most people will say that really what Jesus is saying here at some level is, let the dead, those who are already dead, worry about burial, worry about the other dead. So let those who are spiritually dead worry about physical burial. Let those who don't know me or my kingdom, they can take care of those kinds of obligations, but only, only a very small percentage of people at this time in history can go and proclaim my kingdom. So let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, you know, whatever that looks like in terms of details. I'm not sure uh, I- exactly how to take this saying, except... To say this, burying parents was a universal moral obligation, not just in the Jewish world, but in the wider world, the Greco-Roman world. So this is a duty you owe to your parents that no one would deny. So what Jesus is saying, as tough as this is, is no matter what, Your obligation to be my disciple is the ultimate obligation that you are under. There can be no other duty that gets in the way of your commitment to me. In other words, being my disciple is your number one priority. Nothing else can eclipse that spot. Not even burying your father. Nothing If you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me with 100% wholehearted obedience and submission. That's what you're called to do. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Fascinating about this, but Elijah calling down fire from heaven. When Elijah calls Elisha, to follow him, Elisha first says, Master, first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Elijah says, Sure, what have I done to you? And he allows Elisha to go back and say goodbye to his family before he follows Elijah. So what this man is asking is exactly what Elisha asked. But Jesus says, No. And I think what you're being told here is that Even the analog between Elisha and Elijah is not good enough. It's not close enough when it comes to the call to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not like following any other rabbi. It's not like following any other teacher. It's not like following any other prophet. It's not like following Moses. It's not like following anyone because Jesus is uniquely God incarnate. He is uniquely the Messiah. He is not just in the same category of anyone. We saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not just another Elijah, remember? He's not just another Moses. Those two appear with Jesus, and Peter says, let's build three shelters. And the voice from heaven says, no, this is my son. He's in a category all by himself. You listen to him. And so, somebody's very starkly, you're being told, Jesus isn't like anyone else. He's in a class all by himself. The rules that apply to other human relationships do not apply. You follow him, nothing else gets in the way. Now, what's interesting here is that we're not told what any one of these three people did. So we don't know. Did they follow Jesus? I don't know. Text doesn't say. And so what this does is it ends this section that has been about Messiahship and discipleship by hanging out these three massive discipleship questions. Not for them. They made their decisions. This is for you. Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus, this one who goes to die, this one who has all glory, this one who will rebuke you? Are you going to follow Jesus? If you are, you are told here that discipleship is difficult. Nowhere to lay your head. You are told that it is your transcendent priority. Nothing else can eclipse the place of Jesus in your life. And you're told there's no turning back. There's no looking back. You start following Jesus. You put your hand to the plow. You say you're going to work. Then it's one direction. You're not not just the boy band, you know. It's, you know, you're going one direction. No turning back. You know, we we sing sometimes, and not here, but in, in some churches. There, there are sort of two hymns that are sung at baptisms, right? One is, trust and obey. <laughs> trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And you always sing, depending on how many people are being baptized, one stanza in between each baptism, right? And the other is, I have decided to follow Jesus, which runs this way, in case you don't remember. Words are very hard to remember. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. So at that point, because that's in the hymn book, you you lose all of the argumentation that used to say, well, choruses are really simple. Hymns have substance and aren't repetitious. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. What? No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, not looking back there. The world behind me, the cross before me. That's messiahship and discipleship right there. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me. Even if these guys didn't, these three original guys, I don't care what they did. Though none go with me still, I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. That's the call in this section. All of the glory, all of the pain, all of the joy, all of the hardship. Count the cost and follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Well, listen, I don't know everyone's heart here. I don't know, honestly, if if some of you have committed, truly committed to follow Jesus. And I tell you that even this morning, that invitation is there for you to lay everything behind and come and follow Jesus. It's the best decision you'll ever make. It's the only decision to ever make. Come and follow Jesus. And if you don't know, frankly, even what that means or what that looks like, you know, if you want to chat with me, you know, I'll, I'll chat with you all day, anytime. But don't leave here without really coming to terms with what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to be his disciple. I'm going to ask as we, as we think about those things, as we commit to the Lord in terms of discipleship, I'm going to ask that our musicians come uh, and lead us in our closing song.